She was supposed to come out for a two-week Christmas vacation. Um, she had visited me in Los Angeles before, and so it wasn't an unusual thing necessarily. And the day after Christmas, our mother called, and she said she didn't want to be a mother anymore. And her life had been going downhill, and she'd been very unstable. And, you know, I could hear it in her voice, and and I just told her, then and there, I said, well, if I, I take Adrian now, I'm not going to give her back. You'll have to fight me. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Hi, it's Ronit popping in before the episode officially begins to let you know that my book, When She Comes Back, will be out on May 11th, 2021. It is going to be on Kindle, paperback, hardcover, and audiobook. And it's currently in pre-order right now at all your favorite book sellers, including the big ones, but especially the small ones. And I highly encourage you to pick up a copy in pre-order at one of the independent booksellers you love. And if you send me a copy of your transaction, just take a picture of your purchase, send an email to me or send an Instagram message to me at Ronit Plank with a picture of your purchase, we will send you an audiobook of the memoir free. I was able to record the audiobook with Cedar House Audio in West Seattle, and I would love to thank you for supporting the book and independent booksellers with a free audiobook download of the book. And so all you have to do is either send me an email or send me a direct message on Instagram at Ronit Plank. And if you'd like to sign up for my newsletter, I send it about twice a month and it just has news on podcast episodes as well as book news and appearances and interviews and new writing and things like that. So if you're interested in that, just let me know in your message and I will be happy to sign you up for that. And thank you so much for being a listener and for showing up for these stories and for helping me build this community. I'm so grateful for your listenership. Today, my guest is Andrea Wilson-Woods. She's a writer and a patient advocate who founded the nonprofit Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. Her best-selling and award-winning book, Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days, is a medical memoir about raising and losing her sister to liver cancer. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me, Ronit. I'm so glad that you're here, and I have to tell you, I haven't yet finished your entire memoir, but I'm about halfway through, and I'm so glad that I was able to get to read some of it before we talk again. Your story is, you know, it's just the kind of story that I think when anyone hears just a a fraction about it, probably stops and realizes what a profound impact it's had on your life. Do you think about your story the way that people understand it almost every day? Is it something that's just unable, like you're unable to not think about? That is a good question. And I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question that way before. The short answer is no. I, I don't I don't think about it because it is just my story. You know, it's just my life. It's the way I've lived it. 
And in fact, I didn't really know what, I don't want to say big deal because then I sound arrogant, but I I didn't know how unusual my story was um, until now. I mean, I really didn't quite understand the full scope or impact until really I published my book and I've gotten feedback. I didn't really know. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's also because so often I feel when we're living our life and we're getting through difficulties or whatever it is that we have to do, we don't really have the time and space. I mean, it's not that, I don't think it's that we don't know this isn't comfortable or this is painful, but I, I just don't think we have the room, at least personally, I've experienced that to reflect and wonder what it means. When you're in it. Yeah, like when you, you're in it, you're in survival. Absolutely. Yeah. When you're mm-hmm. in it, you're living it, you're doing it, and you can't, yeah, you can't, you don't have time to reflect. The reflection comes later. Do you think it also has to do with your being so young when all of this began happening? Well, yeah. My journey with my story, if you will, is um, when I was 22 years old, I was living in Los Angeles. I had graduated from USC and I ended up getting custody of my then eight-year-old sister, Adrian. And I became her only parent and legal guardian. And I raised her all through my 20s. And we'll save the the shoe drop. (laughs) (laughs) And I I think it was very fortunate that I really did not know ignorance is bliss. That's the short way, right? I really didn't know what a big deal that was, except that I was the only person I knew who was a parent at that age um, until I met the person who was my boyfriend for a long time, until I met John, who he had a son. And his son and my sister were really close in age. and, And they were very much like siblings. And that's probably one of the reasons that he and I bonded so quickly is just because, you know, we, we became sort of an instant family. Yeah, I, I, I'm really glad. I, I just didn't know what a big deal it was to have custody of Adrian. And I know you've said too that you loved her more than anyone. Mm-hmm. And so it never occurred, you know, to you to say no to, right. to having her. And also that she had come out for the visit in California and it turned into a permanent stay. So it wasn't, you didn't know going in that this was going to change your life, right? No, no idea. She was supposed to come out for a two-week Christmas vacation. Um, she had visited me in Los Angeles before. And so it wasn't an unusual thing necessarily. And the day after Christmas, our mother called and she said she didn't want to be a mother anymore. And her life had been going downhill and she'd been very unstable. And, you know, I could hear it in her voice. And and I just told her then and there, I said, well, if I, I take Adrian now, I'm not going to give her back. You'll have to fight mm-hmm. me. And I don't think she really heard me. but <laughs> um, And that's what ended up happening is that eventually we we did go to court and, and and I got legal custody. Yeah, that's what happened. How long into her stay with you did your mother then reverse course and try to get her back? Because did you, when you said, I'm going to keep her, did you two then sign legal documents or did you not do that legally yet? We had to sign a notarized agreement because I had to get her in school. And, and so I don't, remember the formal name of the document, but mm-hmm. she, my mother did sign something. In fact, she volunteered it right away. And then about eight months later, she changed course. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, she was not calling on a regular basis. She was not staying in touch with Adrian. She she wasn't really doing anything. And then she calls one day and says, oh, well, now I'm, I'm my life is better now. I'm more stable. I want her back. Put her on a plane. 
And I said, no, not going to do that. And, uh, and, and, that, <laughs> and that's when the fun began. <laughs> and how did Adrienne, how, I know she was so young when this happened, but what was, what do you feel like was her understanding about your mother? Because you were older and, and you knew a little bit more about who your mother was. And, and while I don't want to spend too much time on your mother, you know, the, the landscape of your growing up and the landscape of Adrienne's growing up was not one that you would maybe jump to get her back into. Right. So, you know, our, our mother was a nurse and a prescription drug addict that then became a, a, a full-time drug addiction. And she had lost her nursing license, which is why our mother's world sort of unraveled. And so when Adrian came to visit me for that Christmas vacation at that point, our mother had been going from job to job across states. She had moved Adrian in and out of schools and when when she was raising me, she was very high functioning and, and somewhat stable. But by, by the time, you know, she was raising Adrian, she had Adrian in her 40s, um, she just she just unraveled. That's the, the best word for it. Um, I think Adrian actually really understood and um, and it was sad because I, Oh boy, it's been a, it's a long it's been a long time, but I mean I do remember a time in my childhood when my mother was normal and loving and 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 she didn't have a problem. I mean I do remember that mother. Um, Adrian never knew that person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So by the time she came to see you, do you think she was more grateful than missing your mother? No, no, because she did throw a huge temper tantrum and wanted to leave. So, (laughs) 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 no. (laughs) Um, And and our mother didn't tell her either. Uh, That was the other thing. She called, she said, you know, I'm tired of being a mother. And she wouldn't even break the news to Adrian herself. I had to do that. And it it was a lot for an eight-year-old to process. Um, And... Adrian's father, we have the same mother, but her father died before she was born, so she never knew him. And so she really didn't have a lot of adults in her life who were consistent. But no, Adrian, she, we had this very defining moment in our relationship pretty early on. She had been living with me at that point, I want to say about four months. And she just threw this full-blown kicking, screaming. She might as well have been two years old and temper tantrum. And it just got way, way, way out of hand. And she said, you know, I want to, you know, she was screaming. I want to move back to Alabama. I'm sick of you. I'm sick of the rules. I'm sick, you know, that kind of thing. And it's kind of funny now because I called her bluff. And this was back in the day, boy, anyone under 30 is not going to know this or under 35, but this was back in the day when you could call the airlines and you could reserve a ticket and they would hold it for 24 hours. And so that's what I did. I called the airlines, I reserved a ticket. I did this right in front of her and hung up the phone and I said, start packing. And of course, I mean, I had no way to pay for that ticket. (laughs) There was no way, nowhere for her to go. There was no one, no one's going to pick her up at the airport, but she didn't know that. I was just calling the bluff. And so I left the room and, you know, and I heard her throwing things around. I mean, it was, like I said, it was a really, it was terrible. And, but I kind of knew that moment was really important and it needed to happen. And, 
And then she came out um, to the living room and she said, I, I, I'm, she was sorry. She didn't want to go back to Alabama. And, and we really defined our relationship in that moment. And I was very specific with her. And I said, I'm your parent first and then your sister. And one day when you grow up, I really hope I'm your friend. And she was like, okay, parent, sister, friend. And I still have, um, she was an artist and I still have this painting she made me like with splatter paint and it's framed and in my office and it says parent, sister, friend. Mm. (laughs) Did you, you know, you were an actress, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, so you, you move, you were in LA Mm -hmm. and you're in your early twenties and I mean, I mean, I was in LA in my twenties, later twenties and I was an actress and I don't, I mean, I know. So two things I know are that there's no way you were, you're wondering what I'm going to say. Well, there's, there's a lot that you could say right now, Rodine. <laughs> yeah, there are. I know, different conversation. What I want to say, so many things we could talk about. But what I want to say is like, I know that um, you were going to take your sister. Like I know because of what, how, you know, you tell the story and who you are. And I also know that there's no way you could have ever known how you were going to make it financially, your career? Like, I don't, you know, what was in your mind? I, I just would, knew I would figure it out. I would figure it out. I mean, I was not in a good place financially. I, Mm -hmm. I was not making any sort of consistent income. I was living with a, an alcoholic boyfriend and I didn't really fully understand that he was alcoholic. I, I really didn't understand sort of my role and in, in all of that and in, in attracting addicts into my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I just, I just, I figured I would have to figure it out. I know? mean, there's no choice, right? No choice, I mean, yeah. No choice. So, you know, for these couple of years that she first moves in and, you know, I know that you then ended up living with somebody else with John. So can you give me a flavor of what your life was like together? And, you know, these are like, I don't know, it seems like there would be struggle, but like these are the happy days, right? Like the good years. Yeah, well, we I didn't end up with John right away. I got out of that alcoholic relationship and then Adrian and I got an apartment, um, which eventually... We got evicted from oh, for you know, payment. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I ended up getting actually really sick and was in, unable to work. And like the only time in my life, you know, at that point, like I was not able to work. Ended up in the hospital. Like it was it was kind of nightmarish. But um, but we came out of that and and moved and um, and met John in in our new neighborhood actually. And yeah, I mean, right before Adrian was diagnosed, just like two months before, I had said to John. I finally feel like felt like things were were good um, because he had had some kind of bad years um, battling um, his son's mother in court um, over custody and because we only saw him every other weekend. Um, but it just felt like things were kind of settling. Adrian was doing, she had, she had had some really hard years in middle school. She was doing really well in her first year of high school. His son was doing well in elementary school and we had just a good rhythm and it, yeah, it was, it, it was a really good time. And we had a really close, you know, group of friends and they all were sort of the aunts and uncles, they call yes. themselves. <laughs> yes. They're in your, they're in your memoir a bit. Yeah. And I was really, I was really struck by how many people you knew and how many friends were there to help you. Yeah. 
Yeah, they were the A's and the J's. Every everybody's <laughs> name started with an A or a J. Um, so funny. Yeah, yeah, it was really weird actually, and and so, yeah, I mean, to to say that 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 diagnosis, you know, just was like a slap in the face is probably a huge understatement. Yeah, yeah, and and so she was 15 when she got diagnosed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so, for people who haven't yet read your book, um, can you just you know, you know, I'm picturing all the chapters that I read about this, and you know, <laughs> I I know how you this know. happens, but I guess can you talk about a little bit how they discovered it, and you know, also the root cause, because I, I think that they do feel like there was a precursor to the the cancer, right? Right. right. Yeah. So if you right. want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So the book actually opens with, I come home from work and I was a teacher at the time. And typically when I walked in, Adrian would be sitting at the kitchen table doing her homework because that was one of the rules in our house, homework first. And she went to school from seven to two and I actually taught from eight to three. So usually she had been home a good hour before me. And But that day I walked in, uh, Wednesday, May 16th, I'll never forget, um, 2001. And she was in the living room, curled up in a fetal position, crying. This kid never cried and said she couldn't breathe. And she was just really clutching her right side. And, you know, I didn't know what to think, really. Um, The year before, actually, my appendix had burst. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I think there was probably a little bit of a thought of that. But this just seemed really different. And the day before, mind you, totally fine. This pain had come on that day in school. We went to see her pediatrician and we had actually seen him two weeks before to the day because she had hurt her shoulder in school. And he thought we were back because of her shoulder. And she said, no, 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 I'm fine. The shoulder's fine, but I can't breathe. And he took a look at her stomach and it was swollen. And she had not shown me. Her stomach had been swollen a few days. I I always felt very fortunate because she never wore skimpy clothes. I never had to worry about that with her. And most of her friends were always wearing really skimpy mm-hmm. clothes. And but, but her stomach had been swollen a few days. He didn't like that. And he sent us to the ER. And in Burbank, California, which is pretty much nestled right in LA, but Burbank is its own city and school district, et cetera, there's only one hospital. And so we went there and they didn't like what they saw. And they said, okay, we're going to do a CAT scan. Okay. And they did the CAT scan. (laughs) And if you want any indication of Adrian's sense of humor, I always feel like this is the perfect moment. And I still remember it um, so clearly she was being wheeled in for the CAD scan. And she said, hey, sissy, watch it be cancer. And I just laughed. And I was like, oh, bite your tongue, you know. And she laughed and she's wheeled in. And then and they had given her something for the pain. And, it, and at that point, it, it's still just, it's just the two of us together. John hadn't, hadn't shown up yet. No one else had. And we're waiting to hear the news. And the ER doctor comes in and, you know, I, I mean, I just knew, man, I knew the look on his face. It just, it, it just seemed like he had never given, whatever news he was about to tell us, it seemed like he had never given that kind of news before. And he said that uh, he wouldn't look at her. That's warning everyone. <laughs> if a doctor doesn't look at you or look at the patient, that, that's a bad sign. Um, but he wouldn't look at her. He wouldn't say her name. And he said she has tumors in her liver and lungs and we're not equipped to handle the situation. 
because of that hospital, they did not see pediatric patients um, and that they had arranged for a transfer to Children's Hospital Los Angeles and that he was sorry and he walked out. <sighs> and I mean, that, that's how fa- fast it was. So from the time I came home to the time we got that news was approximately six hours. That's so fast. So fast. And I did not go back to work and Adrian did not go back to school. Mm-hmm. And that night, I mean, she was transferred to Children's Hospital Los Angeles. She had a biopsy two days later where they figured out it was a primary liver cancer or hepatocellular carcinoma, which is by far the most common type of liver cancer there is. And um, she was she had started chemo a week later. Mm-hmm. And there had been there had been hepatitis, right? And and I'm not as clear on the different kinds there are, but was this related at all to needles or, or drug use? Do you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so they were really stunned to see what they did in the biopsy because Adrian did not have a pediatric liver cancer. There, there is a pediatric liver cancer um, that happens to children under the age of five called hepatoblastoma. And there is a type of primary liver cancer that does happen in teenagers, but they felt like what they were seeing was was the much more common primary liver cancer. And it didn't make any sense because it almost always comes from an underlying liver condition. And so they came out, she was still in recovery. She hadn't woken up yet. And they said, we're going to test your sister for hepatitis. And I was like, all right. And I mean, all I knew at that point was hepatitis A, and, and the only reason I knew hepatitis A was because when Adrian was in elementary school, there was a hepatitis A outbreak in the mm. Los Angeles school oh, wow. district with their strawberries. <laughs> so hepatitis A is, is just that. It's um, contaminated food or water. It doesn't do any permanent liver damage, but it can make you pretty sick and feel really bad. Um, and there is a, a, vac- a vaccine for hepatitis A. So anyway, but they came back and they said, you know, your sister has chronic hepatitis B and hepatitis C. And now we want to know why you have custody of her. And they determined um, based on our mother's drug history, based on the fact that our mother was a nurse. And also when Adrian was born, that she most likely got both viruses from our mother during childbirth because Hepatitis B is um, transmitted through bodily fluids. Hepatitis C is transmitted through blood. And um, mother-to-child transmission is is not uncommon, especially with hepatitis B. And Adrian was born in 1986. And at that time, hepatitis C in in the mid-80s at that point, you know, it hadn't even been taken out of the blood supply or really identified. And they didn't have a formal name for it yet. And They knew what hepatitis B was, but it was not standard of care to test mothers for hepatitis B. And for my memoir, I actually tracked down my mother's OBGYN. He had long since retired, but I tracked him down because I wanted to confirm whether he had ever tested. And and he, he was shocked and he was devastated. And I knew he would remember my mother just because you know, being a healthcare worker, she was one of the worst patients ever. And so mm, she mm. she was a terrible patient and a pain in the butt. And <laughs> and Adrian was also breech birth. So he completely remembered my mom. Mm-hmm. And but it wasn't standard of care. Mm-hmm. And now if if a woman um has any prenatal care at all, you know, if they go in for any appointment and get any blood work almost anywhere, I mean, even in the rural parts of Alabama, 
um, the state where I now live, mm-hmm. they will test the mother for hepatitis B and C. They probably mm-hmm. won't even tell her, but they will. Mm-hmm. And your mother, as far as you know, didn't suffer from that? Like she didn't have any active disease? Um, she had said, and, and this is where off and on I have periods of guilt. She had said a year and a half prior, she never mentioned hepatitis B. Um, she said she had hepatitis C and that <laughs> the Lord cured her the way he cured Naomi Judd. And mm-hmm. I honest, I didn't believe her because she was such a hypochondriac at that point. And she was always coming up with all these illnesses she had. And I didn't take her seriously. I, I wish I had. But but even if I had, I'm not sure I would have even known. I didn't know mm-hmm. anything about hepatitis B or C at that point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wouldn't. I don't think I would have known to get Adrian tested. Mm-hmm. And so this began this treatment, right? This just, I mean, I would imagine, would you call it relentless? I, I would call it a joke. I mean, knowing what I know now, I, I wish... I wish the doctors had had the fortitude to be completely honest. And I wish they would have said, you know, that we're going to give her drugs, but there's no chance it's curative. It's palliative care. The words palliative care were never used, not Mm -hmm. the entire time. Do you think that they knew that and didn't share it or they still held on to some hope? Oh, they knew. Mm -hmm. They knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, her first oncologist, who was so horrible, we fired him. Mm-hmm. He, his way of telling us, you know, now I can look back again and reflect now. And his way of telling us was, he said, now would be a good time to go to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> you, know, like, yeah. you know, so he just, he he did not know how to tell us. And But I, I, I mean, now with all the work I've done, I mean, it's it's very difficult for most doctors to to say, to tell the truth to their patients. It's extremely hard. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and yeah. also, you know, you were so young and she was so young. I mean, it's just, um, it's it's heartbreaking. You know, I, I hear a lot of stories on this show and um, <laughs> your story just really like, I don't know. It's just, uh, I have a sister, you know, and, and I, I'm the oldest. And so I understand, you know, I mean, not the difference in years is not what you had, but it's such a different type of special kind of relationship. And if you've ever mothered your sister, which I, I had the occasion to do when my mom left, you know, it's just an even, it's another layer. So during this time when, when she was receiving this care that should have just been palliative, did she know before you knew that this was not, I mean, did, like how honest were you with yourself and, you know, how honest were you together about what was happening? I lived in a very healthy state of denial. I mean, I had deep, deep, deep down, I feel like I knew she wasn't going to make it because of these other premonitions I had had. Um, and that comes out in the book. But there was no way I was going to admit that to anyone else or myself. Like, I could not even let that be a really conscious thought, um, even though it was sort of always there underneath, you know. And Adrian definitely knew. And there's a moment in the book, and I, I don't know if you're there yet, but there's a moment in the book that, um, well, you, as you know, so... Adrian's journal is in the book. So you actually see her point of view as well as my point of view. And there's a moment when I actually thought she might be getting better. And in that exact moment, she knew she was getting worse. 
And that's how in tune she was with her body. I mean, she really knew. And and I was also able to see again upon reflection that as she knew she was getting worse, one by one, she started cutting off friends, like just kind of one at a time. And the very last friend she saw, her oldest friend in the world, um, is, uh, I, I just spoke to her last night, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is, uh, yeah, so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, John and you, during the time that she was getting worse and ailing, was your relationship okay during that time? I feel like it was just sort of on hold. Do you know what I mean? And I learned so much later. I, I didn't know, and and this is not in the book, but I mean, I didn't know behind my back that John and my friends who are in the book called me The Rock. I didn't know that. And, and that came out in a conversation with John many years later where he said, you know, he said, that's when I knew you didn't need me. Was, was during that time. He said, you didn't need me. And, and in my mind, right, looking back again, <laughs> the word reflection is really mm-hmm. coming up on, the, on this <laughs> interview. Um, <laughs> you know, it, he couldn't fix the problem. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I didn't need him. It's just that he couldn't fix the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just so much. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to wrap my mind around it. You know, I don't know. I don't know if you were even able to wrap your mind around it. Like, are you able to wrap your mind around it now? What happened to you and, you know, what you went through? Yeah, I am now. And I, I feel like I've actually finally gone through all the stages of grief. And and that was the other thing is that John and I just reacted so differently, especially right after Adrian died, which which is not a, a mystery to anyone. So we're not... We're not <laughs> it's not a spoiler. It's, it's not a spoiler. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, you know, John, John especially, like he just became so angry and I became so sad. And and I didn't really get angry. It was just a few years ago that I had this moment, and and this rage was just like it was it was awful, and it just came on from some stupid Netflix show of all things I saw. But yeah, I, I just uh, I still can't sort of wrap my mind around like raising her, and you know what I mean. I just I, I you know I can tell you this. I would do it all over again. You know, the the pain is worth it. I would do it all over again. Yeah. Did you keep in touch with John's son? I mean, how did he react to the loss? How old was he when she died? He was nine. Mm-hmm. He was, yeah, he was nine when, when she died, almost 10. The last time I saw him was his 12th birthday, and I have not seen or spoken to him since. Well, that's not mm-hmm. true. I have seen him <laughs> but mm-hmm. <laughs> on social media. Um, but mm-hmm. no, I have not spoken to him. I know he and John are very close now, so that's good. That's great. They went yeah. through some really rough years. And, you know, in terms of you in L.A., you know, so, I, I mean, it seems like you lost Adrian and then your relationship with John was over. And, and then you're in L.A., and I'm wondering, I know that you got involved again with somebody. So can you talk about those, that time after she was gone and you're in this place where she used to be and you had moved there to act and, you know, what what did, what was it like for you? What did you do? What were your steps? Well, now you're describing my 30s. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really, really hard time. And that is 
most likely going to be my next book. And I still have a hard time even, you know, I've written down a lot of stuff, but I can't even figure out the exact structure yet because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just not sure. It was, it was a really hard time. I did meet someone. I uh, did end up getting married. We are now since divorced. It it was it was just a really hard time. I tried different careers. I went back to school, got my master's. Um, what did you get your master's in? In writing, in writing. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, the very, very first draft of the book was my thesis for my master's degree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kind of figured if I was writing a book, I might as well get a degree for it. That's kind of how yes. it was. <laughs> very smart, very smart. Um, and it held me accountable. Like I had to finish mm-hmm. it in a certain amount of time. And... Uh, you know, it was it, it was a really hard time, also because I well, I was in a marriage with someone who is a good person, but was not the right person for me. And mm-hmm. I also all of those friends that are in the book, I lost all of them, all of them. And it, how? It, some of them very differently. Um, there's only one friendship that I consciously ended. Um, because it was in my best interest. Um, and that was the sort of the last one. And I sort of hung on to her because I was like, no, no, I can't lose yeah. you too. Um, but uh, it, it's, it, it was really, it was almost, wasn't like losing Adrian all over again, but it was a different kind of pain to lose all of these people. And some of them I lost when John and I broke up because they were initially his friends. But I mean... Others, um, some of them, I can't even tell you why. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. They disappeared. And mm-hmm. so it was a... Uh, I'm just thinking about the experience of trying to begin again with so much uh, recent hard history yeah. behind you. Yeah. It's like, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, I often didn't tell people like when I was meeting new people, I often didn't tell them anything about myself, like my past. I did, I wouldn't. But then something would come up where I would just, you know, hear something so completely stupid. Like, you know, if someone gets cancer, it's because they're too angry and I would just lose my shit. Sorry, mm-hmm. I would get so mad. <laughs> no, I had a conversation with some family recently about this because that idea of, you know, I think it's important to talk about this for, you know, just a little bit. That idea of, you, you know, you can heal your life. You know, there's that whole idea and that people who are ill, you know, they, they haven't taken responsibility over their body. And if you do this, you won't get this. And if you do that, you won't, you know, like there's only so much that, that is actually going to logically flow from that. Like there's some things you just can't fix. And, and I can see how that would be very, very upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Adrian, she... It drove me nuts, but she believed that she caused her cancer. She did. She, in, in Chinese medicine, anger resides in the liver. And she she really felt like her anger toward our mother for being a terrible mother, for abandoning her, anger toward her father because she never got to meet him. And she felt like that anger really is what caused the cancer to happen. Um, what do you think about that? I hate that she felt that way, but I saw how important it was for her to release all that anger, which she did um, before she died. I saw how important that was for her, and she certainly handled it better than most adults I know. 
Do you have anger still toward your mother? No, I, I'm just indifferent. I just, Mm -hmm. I don't have any contact with her. The last time we spoke was right after Adrian died. And I did see her, and this is a spoiler, so I won't say what it was, but I did see her in court uh, five years later. But that's a spoiler, Mm -hmm. so even for you, Mm because you're not there yet. (laughs) But we didn't speak, so... And and I know that you've written that, um, you know, you were afraid of leaving L.A. Like yeah. you, you and I spoke before and you were afraid of leaving L.A. because it would, I mean, I don't want to put the words into your mouth. Can you share why you were afraid of leaving L.A. when you, you know, after everything happened? Well, I was afraid of leaving L.A. because for so many reasons. I mean, I moved to L.A. a few days after my 18th birthday. <laughs> And so it was like what I knew for my adult life. And I was also afraid if I left LA, I was leaving Adrian because she's buried there. And, you know, and I was afraid that I didn't know where to go. That was the other thing. Like, where am I going to go if I'm not in LA? I, I, just so many fears. But, but all of those fears kind of boiled down to fear of change in some way, shape, or form. And... As soon as I made that decision, which had been just gnawing at me for years, but as soon as I decided, I remember the moment I decided to, that I was going to leave, I felt better. Like the minute I decided, I was like, you know, I was like, I I just have to go. And it didn't matter. It's really funny because it, it doesn't happen anymore, but for that first year after I left, people got so hung up on where I moved to. And I moved to Alabama because I'm from the Southeast and I'm actually living in Birmingham where Adrian was born and I kind of knew the lay of the land. But it wasn't about moving to Birmingham. In fact, I don't think this is my final destination, but it was about leaving Los Angeles. It really didn't matter where I went. It was more about, I need to leave this place behind because... It just wasn't serving me anymore. And I wasn't in the entertainment industry anymore. I wasn't happy there anymore. And not even my marriage could keep me there anymore. Just, I was ready. I was I was ready. And once I made that decision, I mean, that was the end of September. And nine weeks later, I left. It's pretty fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah, and how long have you been in Birmingham. Six years now. Six years. Six years. And what's your life like now? Oh, totally different. <laughs> totally different. <laughs> Quieter. Mm-hmm. I don't own a car anymore, which is crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, right. Not that public transportation is very good here, but... Uh, but, you know, you came from a place where if you didn't have a car, that's like the worst thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I wasn't using my car very much. And... I sold it to this wonderful uh, couple, but it that could really use it. And uh, yeah, it's just um, uh, we have real seasons, right? It's freezing. Uh-huh. It's like thirty-two degrees today. It's really cold. <laughs> that is cold. I was going to make fun of you because you know I'm from New York, and you know I'm in Seattle, and it's cooler here now. Oh, but yeah. thirty-two, thirty-two is cold. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yes, it can be yeah. really, really cold here. No, it's 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 much it's much better now. And what about your relationships, like your romantic, your approach to romantic relationships and, and how you're able to be present or, you know, be in one? 
Um, well, I, I did end up getting a divorce and, mm-hmm. um, and I met, I met someone, um, who actually he's not from Birmingham. He's from South Florida. And we went out on a blind date, semi-blind. Mm-hmm. I knew what he looked like, but he didn't know what I looked like. And he <laughs> loves to tell people that. <laughs> and we went out on a blind date and it was just, it was something really special. And so we were long distance for a long time um, until his youngest graduated from from high school. And then he moved here. He moved to Birmingham five mm-hmm. five years ago, I think. And uh, yeah, yeah, we've been together five and a half years now. Mm-hmm. So, and you started the foundation. Can you talk a little bit about Blue Fairy? Yeah, yeah. I I started Blue Fairy in LA a while ago, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. At Blue Fairy's, gosh, eighteen years old now. It's crazy. Um, yeah, it's funny. I I like to joke that when I was a little girl, I never said, and nor does anyone say when they grow up, they're going to start a charity. Like no one says that's their life plan <laughs> ever, okay? Or if they do, I really want to meet that person. And so, but, you know, I, you know, when it came up the first anniversary of Adrian's death, I was in a bad place. I was, this is one of the reasons I think the next book is going to be just as challenging. I was suicidal and I just needed to find a way to channel my grief. And so my thought was, well, I'm going to volunteer for the largest liver disease charity in the U.S. And so I approached them and, you know, at that time they didn't have anything to do with liver cancer. They didn't have anything about liver cancer in their website, but I sort of knew with what I experienced with Adrian and knowing what I did about liver cancer, I knew it was just going to increase in the U.S. And it, and it has. And so I offered to volunteer for them and and they said no. And I said, oh, no, I'll create a program for you. You don't have to pay me. My background's writing and marketing. They said no. <laughs> and so I tried every which way I could and they said no. And it's funny because, I, I mean, if if one person had said yes at that greater Los Angeles chapter, Blue Fairy would not exist. But everyone said, no, we don't want to deal with it. We don't want to do it. And and so I I remember getting off the phone and then I did some more research and I made sure and there wasn't a single organization in the U.S. dedicated to hepatocellular carcinoma. And I was like, okay, well, I guess this is something we got to do. And the name Blue Fairy actually... It's funny because I, I wish I could take full credit for it, but I can't. I didn't come up with it. Um, I I wanted it to be named after Adrian, so it's an honor and memory of her. Of course, I wanted liver cancer in the name somewhere so people knew what the heck we did. Um, but I couldn't kind of figure out from a marketing and branding perspective, like there was something missing. And so um, when I was starting the organization, I sent out an email to, to the people who are in the book who were the aunts and uncles, and I said, Here's what it is. I'm missing something. What do you? What are your thoughts? And every single person came back with some version of Blue Fairy. Wow. And yeah, all of them. Like like you know they had a, you know different you know phrases or different words. And blue was her favorite color. She loved fairies. And that summer she bought blue fu- butterfly wings that she started wearing. And she had this blue wig. And, um, and she was actually buried in her blue butterfly wings in her blue dress. And it, it just clicked. It was like, oh my gosh, like that's it. Like they all saw it and I didn't see it. And so that's where the name of the organization comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's remarkable that they all came back with a variation of that. That's, <laughs> yeah. you know, they they knew who she was. Oh, they knew. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah she was our blue fairy. Mm-hmm. And, and you go back. Do you still go back to L.A. on Halloween for her anniversary? I do. I go back. Uh, I go back every year on Halloween since that was her favorite mm-hmm. holiday. And I spend usually about five days as my tolerance now for LA. <laughs> That's it. And then, uh, um, and even this year, this past year, um, at the time of this recording, we're still in COVID. And when yeah. I went back, I was like, okay, COVID is not going to stop me. I had to, I did have to make some adjustments in terms of where I stayed and things like that. But I went back and um, yeah, it's, it's really important to me to go back once a year, yeah. visit her grave and, and, um, and see, and I see friends and stuff too, but it's just more about being there at least once a year. Yeah. You know, the I have this question and I it seems almost like elementary, but I just want to, I'm going to just take a stab at it. You know, what do you do with the pain? Mm. Well, I think you're going to laugh. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I have this thing called panger where you're, angry, but it's horribly painful. It's kind of that intersection where sadness and anger collide, at least it is for me. And one of my favorite things to do, which I've only, I think the place that used to be here in Birmingham is closed, but one of my favorite things to do when I lived in Burbank was when I would have these sort of hits of panger, I would go to the batting cages. And I loved going to the batting cages. And can't do baseball, that's too fast, but I would do slow pitch softball. And I would just hit balls until my arms, you know, were numb or <laughs> or sore or or until the panger was at least had subsided. And and that helps a lot. So I do think it's um it's always good for me to move my body in some way. And sometimes it needs to be something like that where I'm like hitting a ball and sometimes it just needs to be a walk and sometimes it it needs to be something quieter, like a meditative yoga sort of thing. But it's really important to keep moving. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm so glad I asked that question because I've, I've never heard that term and you were like ready. <laughs> you actually have a thing, you actually have a thing you do. Yeah, I, do. Just like, I didn't know you were gonna. And before, before we, we direct listeners to where they can find you and your website and all that stuff, I was just curious, like, you know, people talk to me a lot about, I, I think a lot about story and I think a lot about writing and, you know, why you do a podcast and why people talk about their stuff. Cause there are people who don't talk about their stuff and they don't want to. And, you know, why do you think sharing helps? I'm just curious, like, what's your take on it? I think it helps because people remember stories, you know, and you can have all the numbers in the world, but people remember stories. I I remember one time when, as an organization, Blue Fairy got more involved in sort of the political advocacy part of, of the nonprofit space. And I was asked to go to Washington and, and tell my story. Um, and I wasn't really a pro at it at that point in terms of how you do it, you know, when you're going into a, a rep, you know, a congressman's office or a senator's office. And um, initially, we were focusing on numbers because the numbers with liver cancer are just so crazy. And you just get blank stares because nobody cares. Like nobody cares. The numbers don't, no, nobody cares. 
And the minute I stopped talking about the numbers and just told my story, they perked up. And I think that's why stories are so important because we remember the story. You know, we we remember the individual story. And that story represents so many more people. I mean, my, my sister getting primary liver cancer at 15 is so unusual, especially at that time. She is, was as far from the typical patient as you could possibly get. However, having chronic hep B and hepatitis C is not unusual for that cancer. So, and so that's really important to get across to people. Yeah, so I, I think it's really important. I mean, no one, no one has to share their story if they don't want to, but my gosh, if you, if you do, you have no idea what an impact you can have on people's lives. I agree, yes. So Andrea, where can people, where would you like people to find you? You know, and I'll post all these links too, but if there's a couple of places you'd want people to check out. To get the book is uh, just go to betteroffbald.com. Uh, that's all the links for the retailers are there and all my social media is there too. So you can find me there. Um, that's probably the easiest way. And for Blue Fairy, it's B-L-U-E-F-A-E-R-Y, bluefairy.org. And for Cancer University, it's cancer.university. Great. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Andrea. I just, I'm, it's like a gift to be able to have this time with you, to talk with you and to, I just feel like, I don't know, I'm like totally fangirling you here, but I, what I want to, <laughs> <laughs> I am, I just, I'm so, I'm really, I just feel like I, I'm so thankful to you for allowing me to, you know, hold this space for your story a little bit. I'm really, really sorry for your loss. Thank you so much, Ronnie. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.